We're going to begin our reading today in this passage at verse 19. As we ponder sin and the good news. Sin and the good news. I'm going to start at verse 19. Paul writes, or continues writing, I should say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Study of sin is called harmartiology. By the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, if you become a student of the law, if you would read the law daily, as David said, you would read the law, you would become a student of the law and of sin. You would understand sin. We need to understand sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The reason we need to understand this is because no man adequately sees himself as much of a sinner as he is. We don't know the law well enough. We don't know ourselves well enough. Which is really one of the main reasons why the next verse doesn't have the impact on your soul that it should have. This next verse is one of the gems of the gospel. This next verse is one of the centerpieces of the gospel, one of the centerpieces of the Reformation. The dark ages in the church of Rome had allowed this truth to fall out of sight. So men and women exactly like yourselves lived in darkness and no understanding of what it meant to be lost and and how it would be that salvation could be found. There's no way we can emphasize this passage of Scripture well enough or enough. But Paul goes on to say, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now it is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, which is a reference to the graphe, it's a reference to the scriptures, the law of Moses and the prophets. They had testified to this, the righteousness of God apart from the law. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God. Underline that, righteousness of God. That contrasts with the righteousness of man. Okay? The righteousness of God contrasts with the righteousness of man. Verse 22 again. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. If you mark in some way to all and on all, it becomes increasingly more important as we study and ponder the meaning of this letter, the paradigm of Paul and and his hearers, Paul and the other apostles and the Jews of Israel, when he says to all and on all who believe, and this becomes even more apparent in our study this morning, one of the stunning truths in the gospel is that Gentiles, those who are not God's people, are brought into and made God's people by adoption, by faith in Christ. So all is the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul was shocked and stunned by this when he realized it. Peter was shocked and stunned by this when he realized it. This was a a very difficult and amazing thing for them to realize. So we're going to ponder on his words about the law. Because God's law suggests a perilous rule. A perilous rule. It suggests it. It doesn't teach it. But it is very commonly and easily believed and understood. Something about God's law. You see, rules of ethics, standards of ethics give a paradigm they, they make for a scheme where you learn to recognize good and bad. Ethics create a grid work. And when you understand an ethical grid, then you also come to understand what is good and what is bad. They can vary from country to country. Ethics are culturally influenced. Some ethics are, are, are absolutes. But even ethics like don't murder people, most people recognize it's bad to murder somebody. That's an ethical standard. But there are some headhunting tribes who think it's virtuous to take the life of the right kind of people. So murder can fit in the ethical standard of, of some people. But ethics give a, a paradigm where we learn to recognize good and bad. So Romans teaches us that good men are still bad men. It's one of the main lessons you've learned up to this point in the book of Romans. Good men are still bad men, or in other words, all men are bad men. Rules, you see, they can and they do curb man's worst potentials. Rules can limit man's worstness. But man usually mistakes his conformity to good Man usually mistakes his obedience to good with actual virtue. So a man will think or say, I haven't stolen. I'm 
virtuous. And it murdered and virtuous. Men see their conformity to ethical principles as proof of their virtue. Men very rarely recognize, listen to this, because I think this is a profound truth. Men very rarely recognize that if they were actually good and virtuous, the rule would never need to guide them. You understand that? If you are actually virtuous, you would never run into a conflict in your mind. Oh, stealing is bad. Lying is bad. Gossiping is bad. You would never find yourself pushed back against your desire to gossip by your own conscience. Your conscience will say, don't gossip. And sometimes you'll bite your tongue. And you're not going to speak. But isn't it profoundly true that that we don't normally recognize that if we were actually good, the rule would never need to apply to us. We would never bring it to bear on our own person if we were actually good. If men were good, or if you were good, then you would be inherently good. It would be native to your nature. It would be natural to you if you were good. Without the ethical rule and man's submission to it, Without the rule and without man's submission to it, he is going to prove every kind of destruction and misery that comes from his own nature, which is what we have just read back up in Romans 3, verse, let's find destruction and misery, verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Destruction and misery are in your ways. What prevents you from it at times? Your submission to ethics. Your fear. Your conformity to the rule. But without the rule and without your submission to it, you would do everything and more. What you see listed here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 so far. And what is worse is that men who have an ethic usually claim that their discipline in keeping the ethic, usually men understand my conformity to my ethic is the thing that has become my virtue. It has become my status. Your keeping, your ethic is the reason you are guarded and preserved and held up in the place where you are, morally and spiritually speaking. You keep it, you're disciplined by it, and it holds you up. 
It actually increases your status and your standing. And good men look down on bad men. Every single one of you has your own little list of goods. And when somebody doesn't value your goods, it is most common for you to hold them in suspicion or to look down on them or despise them who don't value the way you value. You don't have the standard that you have. You, you think they're falling short. And it's actually likely that in many cases they are falling short. But good men believe God looks on them with approval even if some men despise them for their goodness. In other words, many men are very content to pursue their good thing and they, they see God approving them. They see God liking them even if other men despise them for their pursuit of these good things. And I would say that these kind of men, they idolize good. I'm going to explain that. I'm going to develop that thought for you a little bit more. We really need to understand this concept here as we begin to understand the concept of justification. You see, if a man idolizes good... I'm asserting that that man has made a virtue his idol. He's become an idolater of a virtue. Let me explain to you how I think that works. Good can make you look good. Good can make you look good. Good boosts a man's status and his respectability. Good can even make God like you. In the mind of many men, the way we understand our ethic, this is, this is our approach to this. Paul has just completed a long argument which began at about verse 18 of chapter 1. A long argument that shows that good men and bad men share the same corrupt nature. That's an important overall thing for you to understand about the point that Romans has made, right? Jews and Gentiles all have a corrupt nature. If you understand that, that's an important fundamental thing to understand about what we've read to this point. They, seem to, they share the same corrupt nature. Good men must discover, however, and much of the argument Paul has made, good men must discover that all of the ills and perversions and idolatries that are in bad men are in good men. Good men must understand that there are not two classes of men in the world. And it's the hardest case to make for good men. Paul focuses much of his attention on good men. But he assures them that their guilt before God is certain. Paul makes this point over and over again. And their guilt is without justification. He, he says a phrase like, therefore you are without excuse. Look at 2 verse 1. 
Romans 2.1, he said this very thing. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Another thing he might have said, and like I said, this is the thrust of the gospel. He might have said, you have no justification. You are not justified, O man. This is the thrust of the argument. This is the pressure of the argument. Paul is making the point that women and men and women and men are all longing for justification. Many of you, many men and women, make justification in their own minds. They create their own. And when he says in 2.1, you are without justification. You are inexcusable. He is desiring for them to see that we really are just like those men he has been talking about in chapter 1. We're just like them. We're idolaters. We're godless. We haven't been thankful. We haven't been grateful. Even men with wonderful morals are guilty before God. They are not justified. They must realize, men must realize that the wrath of God is being treasured up as men live in this false world of being justified before God. Justification will never be found by your virtues. Your virtues cannot produce your justification. You on your best day, you on your best year are not justified before God. Remember Matthew 7, 22 and 23. I know you guys know this passage. Remind yourselves, look at it with me just for a second. Matthew 7, 22, there's this profoundly interesting passage where good people are facing the Lord Jesus at the end of the age. And as we read this, I want you to be asking yourself, on what basis had they justified themselves? On what basis was their justification? You see, justification is the thing that we must be able to explain or present before the Lord at the end of the age. How do men justify themselves? Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name? What was it that the person, the person speaking this is justifying themselves before the Lord? What is it that was their justification? Well, what did they do? They're religious, aren't they? They cast demons out of people. They prophesied. Do you know how many people who are prophesying this year and last year and last year, do you know how many people who are prophesying are going to go to hell because they're not justified? Justification is, is the heart of the gospel. But these dear Religious ones. They said, have we not prophesied in your name? 
cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. The Lord Jesus will say, I never knew you. The Lord Jesus is justification. The Lord Jesus is righteousness. He's the righteousness of God. And men don't know how to have it. They make it up. But this passage shows us how men labor for justification, how people work for justification, and how misleading a man's own goodness is. You see how these ones who are speaking to the Lord are confident that their their goodness was somehow enough. They've been good enough. They've done enough. And the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. Justification as a definition, it means the act of God's declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. Very, very simple definition. The act of God's declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. Justification. Romans 3.16 again. There's a fearlessness of men. Men don't know how to fear. Read with me. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Remember, of course, we're we're looking at what Paul has been explaining is, is a steady... it's a tripping and a slipping deeper and deeper and further and further away from the holiness and the rightness and the goodness of God. At this point in Paul's argument, he's saying, what is the M.O. of mankind in the moral history of the world? What is is man all about? Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So let's think for a moment about God and the law and man's mouth. Let's think about God and the law of man's mouth. You notice that Paul focuses on fearlessness. There's no fear of God before their eyes, is what it says there in verse 18. And so I think it's very easy for us to figure out that the law should have made men fear. The law should have made men fearful. It should have had that effect. Because when it says in 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes, like verse 19, now we know that what things over the law says, it says to them are under the law. What is the purpose of the speaking law? What's the last part of the phrase say? So that they would shut up. The law's usefulness to them would be that they would shut up. But when a man finds his heart friendly with the law, when man finds himself comforted by the law, 
when he finds the law giving him gold stars of success. When he finds the law giving him merit, when you find the law giving you merit, when you find you're keeping the rules, maintaining or improving your status before God, you are not understanding the law. You don't understand what it is for. You don't understand even its operation on yourself. You're not seeing it correctly. I'm going to illustrate this for you. Your flesh, that is, your manliness and your womanliness, can fake every single one of God's virtues. And use them for yourself. Use them for your advantage. Use them for your credit. Think about this for a minute, how creative and how how clever and how self-deceived we are. Think about with me godless kindness. Godless kindness. Think about this illustration with me. A man can be kind, and kindness is a virtue. A woman can be kind too. A man can be kind. But if a man is kind because it serves his purpose, because it serves his purpose, has not kindness become an idol to him? Is he serving kindness because of what he will get in return from it? That is how kindness, that is how virtue becomes an idol. Can a man be kind so that people will know he is kind and praise him and recognize him for his kindness? Can a man serve the virtue of kindness for his own purposes? Of course he can. Can his kindness actually be a tool for himself? Do some people practice Kindness in order to lure a friend or to lure somebody into trust and admiration. Can someone practice kindness for their business sake or for sex or for status? Can kindness be a tool that a man learns to play for his own ends? We and all men can use kindness to serve ourselves. Sometimes we call it flattery. Where men manipulate, men serve self, men honor gods of false virtue for their own ends. And in the end, most men will bring these examples to court And men will say, what a good boy am I. What a good man I have been. Look at my kindness. Look at my truthfulness. Look at my virtue. And all along he's been using it for his own ends, for his own praises. When in reality the laws of God and God's ethics should produce fear. And verse 18 said there is no fear in their eyes. There's no fear in their eyes. Verse 19, the law should shut mouths. The law is no place for a man's boast. 
does the law shut mouths? Verse 19, we know what things soever the law says. It says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Does the law shut mouths? So we're pondering on this. Ask the Lord in your own heart right now. Say, Lord, help me to understand the proper fear of you by your law. Ask the Lord to help you understand His holiness as we look at this because it is crucial to our understanding of justification. When the law says don't gossip, we know there's not a commandment that says don't gossip, but we can tie it back up into the laws or the law that speaks about what we would say about another person, false witness. When the law says don't gossip, you will sometimes restrain your mouth and you will feel good about it. You will feel like, ah, I got it. I kept my mouth shut. But shouldn't instead, shouldn't you fear that you are the kind of thing where gossip is just waiting to launch? Isn't the point of God's law of holiness for you to realize that gossip is a grossly unacceptable thing? It should cause us to go, Lord, I am a gossiper. That ugliness, that betrayal of my fellow man is just there, Lord. Don't you understand how the law helps you see with such great clarity everything that is ungodly about us? It is in our fiber and it comes out sometimes and God hates it. The law spots gossipers, which is all of us. And your successful halting of it usually isn't a boast. Usually it's not something to brag about. The law will never cure the sinful nature in us. The law will never cure the sinful nature in us. But by God's grace, the law helps us to see the nature that is in us. The law will expose a nature in us. The law isn't a checklist. The law is not a checklist to help you and I know how to make ourselves presentable to God. When the law says don't blaspheme and you bite your tongue and you catch your mouth and you stop yourself from using his name in vain, we're glad, we're all glad that we didn't say it if we didn't say it. We're relieved that 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 didn't come out of our mouth and make us a bad witness. But Paul's point here is to help you and I realize When the law says, 
don't blaspheme. And we, we see it, we hear it, we recognize it in us. It is so that we would know, I am a sinner. I am the kind of man or I am the kind of woman that can blaspheme. And God cannot tolerate a blasphemer. It is to help us see us as people who need to be and who must be justified. We must find justification. We must find righteousness. And the law helps us realize that we need this. The fence of the law the rightness of the law, the holiness of the law is always right there in our view. It's always there, ready to push us back, to corral us back, curbing our mind, curbing our mouth. The law exposes the godlessness of men. And it should make men shut their mouth in fear. But usually, I I believe it's true of most of us, usually men use the law to comfort ourselves and our virtue. We would use the law to justify ourselves. Now again, at verse 19, (coughs) said, Now we know that what things soever the law says... It says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That is the point of the law. That is the point of the ethics and the commands of God. Therefore, he goes on to say, by deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the gospel is indeed about justification. The gospel is about justification. So the second part of verse 19, let's read that. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law speaks to those who are under the law. The Jew, the Jew would say pagan is the reason that someone is condemned. And they would say law is why we are justified. Now let's look at this through the Jew's eye just for a second as we're trying to understand who needs justification and how men understand this. Look at Luke 18, verse 18. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So right away the Lord exposes the error in how he thinks about who is good and who isn't good. Why would this young man, why would this man measure himself good. Why does he call the Lord Jesus good? Well, he sees men as good men and bad men. So 
So they have this conversation about this man's interest in eternal life. Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So how is the law serving this man's understanding of himself and salvation? The law is a comfort to him. The law is an assurance to him that he's a good man. The law is his basis for understanding how he will meet God. When Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now the Lord Jesus goes after his covetousness here. Verse 23 says, When he heard this, he became sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So this is one example where the Lord Jesus used the law to show a man that he cannot be justified by the law. He came to ask the Lord Jesus about eternal life, about salvation. He justified himself, that is, he saw himself approvable to God by his keeping of the first list of laws that the Lord Jesus had mentioned to him. But what he doesn't understand about God's law is that the law of perfect holiness and the law of goodness will never reveal a man's godliness. It won't show a man that he is just before the Lord. It never will. It cannot because men are not. This man would tell us of his virtue. This man could easily explain his justification before God. And the rules of God's law were something that actually held him up. In his mind, in his life, the law was something that would allow him to put himself forward to God. We're going to contrast him with somebody else here in just a second. Why didn't the law shut his mouth? Why did not the law shut this man's mouth? Why didn't the law help him know he was a lawbreaker? Why didn't the law cause him to fear God? Jesus went on to say here that salvation is impossible with man. At the end of the conversation, at the end of this text, those who heard the Lord Jesus teaching this, they said, who then can be saved? Who who can actually accomplish this, God? Who can do this? The Lord Jesus said, things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Salvation is possible with God, but it is not possible for men. Justification is possible for God. And I believe Jesus meant that man cannot justify himself. 
Man cannot justify himself. Let's think just for a moment about the mystery of God's justification. Like I said to you a moment ago, the law suggests a rule. The law suggests a principle that you adapt. The thing you adapt is, is if I follow the rule, then God will approve of me and accept me. That is not what the law was meant to teach. So let's consider for a moment the mystery of God's justification. From verse 21, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. There is a solution for justification that the law and the prophets knew, the law and the prophets spoke about, but most of the Jews missed it. The law and the prophets said God can do two very amazing things. The power of God to affect something amazing is shown in a couple, several different places in the law. The way to righteousness can be accounted to a man. These are the two things. Can be accounted to a man and God can not impute iniquity. In other words, instead of seeing the guilt and counting the guilty one guilty, he cannot impute iniquity. Genesis 15.6 is a verse that you should write down. This is one example of the way of righteousness being a revealed mystery. Genesis 15.6 says, and he, and this is Abraham, and he believed the Lord. And he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Man's need for justification, man's need for righteousness, which cannot be had by the law, can be had. And this first clue of it that we read about in Genesis 15 is Abraham's righteousness by faith. Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. How is man going to be righteous? How is man going to be justified? It is hinted at there in Genesis 15, 6. Psalm 32, 2. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That was the second thing I mentioned a moment ago. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity means guilty, doesn't it? Iniquity means wrong. So if he says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, does that mean the man is guilty or innocent? It doesn't say anything except for that God is not going to impute it. 
we already know that all men are guilty. It says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Imputation means to plate. It means to plate or interpenetrate. What does the word plate mean? Some of you ladies might know what that word plate means. It means a braid. Plating. Plating is an old word for braiding. Plate. P-L-A-I-T. Imputation means to plate or interpenetrate. To weave or fabricate. So when the scripture speaks about imputing or weaving iniquity, imputing iniquity means to interweave iniquity. Why are men counted sinners? Romans chapter 5. We are born in Adam. We are imputed with Adam's guilt. It's woven into mankind because of our relationship to Adam. Imputation means it's, it's made to be true about you. It's interwoven into you. Justification speaks about guilty men who are imputed with righteousness. I'm sorry for using these big words, but these words are how we understand these huge and important subjects of the gospel. So guilt, that the wages of sin, guilt of sin requires a wage of death. How do you deal with sin? How does God see sin? Men must be imputed with something that removes the stain and the guilt of sin so that God can look on sin as righteousness. How can God see the sinner as righteous? If he weaves in righteousness, if he covers the sin and imputes righteousness, then God sees righteousness. God can count righteous. So the guilty one is bound in righteousness. He is imputed with righteousness. How does a guilty person get in righteousness? Well, the gospel tells us we must be in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are in Christ. Where is your guilt? It is in Christ. Where is the sinner? He's died with Christ on the cross. So all of the laws, condemnation of men's sin, should shut our mouths, especially in regard to our claim to any virtue, our claim to any righteousness, our claim to any worthiness. It's just not true. What is a Christian's boast? What can we brag in? What what can we claim? The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, is my righteousness. 
all of the good works, all of the perfections of Christ have been interwoven into me. They've been granted to me. Not by works of righteousness that I have done, but by His mercy, by His forgiveness, by His imputing righteousness. The guilty is guilty, and he is unrighteous, and he cannot fix it. He can't clean it up. He must believe, the sinner must believe that his sin is sinful, and utterly sinful. And our knowledge of this drives us to the Lord Jesus drives us to God seeking for forgiveness. I just read you that slightly long passage there in uh, Luke 18. I read to you from 18 to 27. The Lord Jesus had spoken of this young man who thought that he was good. Right before then, in the book of Luke, he also had spoken a very short parable about men who do not understand the force of the law's condemnation. The Lord Jesus had told a parable before what I just read to you. So look at this with me. It's in Luke 18, verse 9. And and understand how it is that the law shuts a man's mouth And now I'm also going to say how the law should open your mouth. As you think about what the law has taught us and and what is Paul teaching us about the law and about justification, look at how the Lord Jesus taught about this. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did he say to the law? What did that man say to the law? He said, I'm guilty. He said, the law exposes me. He says, the law makes me so needy, I don't know what to do except for to run to God and beg for His mercy. This is where a sinner finds hope. This is the point of the law, and this is the secret of justification. Verse 14, the Lord Jesus went on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. to die tonight my friend you want to meet God justified there's one way to do that 
It is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our justification. He is our righteousness. We have no boast in any virtue. And the more you and I understand God's great perfection of goodness and holiness, the more we understand this, the more we should understand our own need for righteousness and justification, and the more should be our praise and our gratitude and our thanks for the one who took on flesh and lived a perfect holy life and died the sinner's death so that we sinners wouldn't have to die the sinner's death. God receives every contrite sinner who confesses his guilt to him and asks him for righteousness. This is how Paul is beginning to explain justification. Don't make the mistake of letting the law be your friend in in building your name and building your reputation and building your virtue. I'm not saying commit sin that grace may abound. I'm not saying that. Because Paul says that should never be. But I am saying that the law should never be the place for our boast. The law should never be cause for our looking down our nose at another poor sinner. Let's uh, thank the Lord in prayer for a moment. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. Oh God, magnify our sins in our own eyes. Oh Lord, that each of us would be humble before you and needy before you and grateful. Oh God, fill our hearts with thanks for the great Savior who gave us life that we would not have to. In his name we pray. Amen.